Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 71 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question, was Jesus a myth, misrepresentation, just a man, or the master and Messiah? And we're going to talk about how the female first witnesses of the resurrection actually answered that question. So happy Tuesday to you, my friends. Our passages today in the Bible are Exodus 22, Job chapter 40, John chapter 1, and 2 Corinthians 10. And I don't know if you've noticed it, but everybody's been talking about the coronavirus around, and for the last few weeks, we've been reading the books of First and Second Corinthians. Is it a coincidence or what? Okay, I'm just kidding. So I do want to encourage you to check out our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. I want to beg you for reviews on iTunes and sharing the show with your friends on social media. And if you do more of those things, I'll do less of making corny jokes about coronavirus. Deal? Deal. Today, we're still focused on the women witnesses of the wondrous resurrection of Jesus, but I would be absolutely remiss not to at least point us towards that magisterial passage in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So let's turn it over to Charles Spurgeon for a moment. He's not going to give us any corny jokes, but he is going to point us in a great direction for this passage. And Spurgeon says... John is especially careful that we should know that Jesus is a real and true person, and therefore he tells us that the the divine word of whose fullness we have received is most assuredly God. No language can be more distinct and explicit than that which John uses concerning Jesus. He ascribes to him the eternity which belongs alone to God. In the beginning was the word. He, beyond all question, claims divinity for Jesus. The Word was God. He ascribes to Him creative power. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He ascribes to Him self-existence, which is the essential characteristic of God. In Him was life. He claims for Him a nature peculiar to God. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And he says that the word is the true light, which lights every man that comes into the world. No writer could be more definite in the expressions he uses, and beyond all question, he sets forth the true and proper deity of that blessed one whom we all must receive if we would obtain eternal salvation. Yet John does not fail to demonstrate that our Lord was also man. He says the word was made flesh, not merely assumed manhood but was made flesh, made not merely man as to his nobler part, his soul, but man as to his flesh, his lower element. Our Lord was not a phantom, but one who, as John declares in his first epistle, could be seen and heard and touched and handled. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He lived with the sons of men. A carpenter shed his lowly refuge in the caves and mountains of the earth, his midnight resort and his afterlife. He dwelt among sinners and sufferers, among mourners and mortals, himself completing his citizenship among us by becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Thus, while he is so august a person that heaven and earth tremble at the majesty of his presence, yet he is so humble a person that he is not ashamed to call us brethren. As promised yesterday, we continue discussing Luke chapter 24 today. 
Now, the resurrection is most certainly worth a two-part episode and really much more than that. Our topic is all about the women who were the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. And part of what I'm going to read below is from my book, Easter, Fact or Fiction, 20 Reasons to Believe Jesus Rose from the Dead. That is the second best-selling book of all time on Amazon. Okay, maybe not. According to Matthew 28... The first two witnesses to the risen Jesus were women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Luke adds that Joanna was there as well as, quote, other women, and seems to indicate that the other was Mary, the mother of James. All four Gospels written down by different men in different places at different time periods all feature a female, at least, and several in some cases, as the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. That some Gospels mention one female and other Gospels mention several is far from contradictory. That kind of thing is the very essence of differing eyewitness testimony. Some details will be included by some authors and omitted by others. And the bottom line is this. Women, several of them, were the first witnesses of Jesus resurrection. Additionally, Mary Magdalene, perhaps the foremost of these female witnesses, had what might be considered a bit of a sketchy past, because the Bible tells us Jesus had driven out not one, but seven demons out of her at one point. All of that leads to an incredibly important question. If in the first century the testimony of women was not considered as reliable by any culture, why does the Bible clearly and in great detail portray women as being the first and primary witnesses to the risen Jesus? That question also kind of begets another important question. How is it, given the assumed unreliability of women in the first century, that so many thousands of people eagerly believe the account of the resurrection of Jesus, many at the cost of their lives? I want you to think about that for a second. So all four Gospels present to us women as the first and primary witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. The keynote claim of the entire Bible is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, rose from the dead. These women are the first witnesses of it. How inconvenient that would be in the first century when we have documented evidence that first century courts and first century people did not often admit the testimony of women. It boggles the mind. And not only that, but the Bible goes out of the way to tell us that some of these witnesses, including Mary Magdalene, had a pretty sketchy past. I mean, having seven demons cast out of you? Now, just think about it. If you're writing a legend, wouldn't you smooth those details out a little bit? Wouldn't you make it a little bit clearer? Wouldn't you make it a little bit more believable if you're trying to deceive people? Again, as of the point I made yesterday and the point I'm going to keep making is, if you are making up a bunch of bunk and trying to get people to believe your lie, you're not going to have witnesses that are women in the first century, and you're certainly not going to have sketchy women as your witnesses. Now, on the other hand, if you're reporting things exactly as they happened, well, maybe you are going to have that. And that, my friends, does not lend itself to the theory that decades or even centuries after the crucifixion of Jesus, believers added to the gospel that he rose from the dead. If you're doing that, 
Why have the women as the witnesses? There's no logical reason for such a thing. So, though it's not part of the Bible, not even considered scripture at all, there is a very old apocryphal document called the Epistula Apostolorum. It dates to the 2nd century, sometime in the 100s probably. It's supposedly, it's not probably not, it's apocryphal, but it's supposedly an eyewitness account of the apostles and it covers issues like the resurrection of Jesus, some of his parables, and several prophecies. That document contains a depiction of the resurrection of Jesus and contains extended dialogue between Jesus and the women at the tomb. It's interesting for the purposes of our discussion here because it depicts what would have likely been the attitude of men in the first and second century to the proclamation of women that Jesus rose from the dead. Specifically, it portrays the 11 remaining disciples utterly refusing to believe the testimony of the women until they actually see Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that this document is true. It's a, it is a apocryphal document, probably not written by who it claims to be written well after the New Testament. But as we read yesterday, Luke does show us the women told the man disciples that Jesus was rose from the dead and they did not believe her. They did not believe the ladies. So I'm not posting this because I believe it's a reliable record written by the apostles of what happened on the first Easter, but because it's a good example, again, of how first century men would have viewed the testimony of women. And here it goes. This is from the Epistula Apostolorum. Concerning whom we testify that the Lord is he who was crucified by Pontius Pilate and Archelaus between the two thieves and was buried in a place which is called the place of a skull, the Cranion, and thither went three women, Mary, she that was kin to Martha, and Mary Magdalene, and took ointments to pour upon the body, weeping and mourning over that which was to come to pass. And when they drew near to the sepulchre, they looked in and found not the body. And as they mourned and wept, the Lord showed himself unto them and said to them, For whom weep ye? Weep no more. I am he whom you seek. But let one of you go to your brethren and say, Come, the master is risen from the dead. Martha came and told us. We said unto her, What have we to do with thee, woman? He that is dead and buried, is it possible that he should live? And we believed her not that the Savior was risen from the dead. Then she returned unto the Lord and said unto him, None of them hath believed me that thou livest. And he said, Let another of you go unto them and tell them again. So Mary came and told us again, and we believed her not. And she returned unto the Lord, and she also told him. Then said the Lord unto Mary and her sisters, Let us go unto them. And he came and found us within and called us out. But we thought it was a phantom and believed not that it was the Lord. Then he said, said he unto us, Come, fear ye not, I am your master, even he. O Peter, whom thou didst deny thrice, and dost thou deny again? And we came unto him, doubting in our hearts whether it were he. Then he said unto us, Whether Wherefore doubt you still and are unbelieving? I am he that spoke of you of my flesh and my death and my resurrection. But that you may know that I am he, do, Peter, put your finger into the print of nails in mine hands. And thou also, Thomas, put thy finger into the wound of the spear in my side. But thou, Andrew, look on my feet and see whether they press the earth. For it is written in the prophet, a phantom of a devil makes no footprint on the earth. 
And we touched him, that we might learn of a truth, whether he were risen in the flesh, and we fell on our faces and worshipped him, confessing our sins, that we had been found unbelieving. What a fascinating passage. It's almost kind of funny in its depictions of the disciples utterly refusing to listen to the female witnesses. The only possible rationale, reason, that the Bible depicts women as the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus and prominent witnesses as his, at his crucifixion and burial is that it factually happened. The depiction of these women as witnesses to what should be considered the most monumental event in the history of the world makes no sense whatsoever if the biblical accounts of Jesus' resurrection are invented or exaggerated or embellished. Here's why. There are perhaps five main theories about who Jesus was, which can be summed up with the five M's used by Southern Evangelical Seminary President Alex McFarland. Was Jesus merely a myth? That is, was he a legendary sort of character that was invented whole cloth by the lower class culture of Jerusalem who were, I don't know, seeking a hero to look up to? Or was Jesus a man, simply a great teacher who lived a great life and had a great influence on people, but nothing more than a special and very mortal human being? In this view, either the followers of Jesus held him in much higher esteem than they should have, or Jesus himself had the most remarkable delusions of grandeur in history. Of course, a third option is that Jesus was a mystic. That is to say that perhaps he did possess some form of esoteric knowledge and power and spiritualism that sort of elevated him over the rest of humanity. Perhaps something he was, he was something more than merely a man. Perhaps, you know, along the lines of a first century alchemist of sorts or even something like a mutant from comic book fame. Under this theory, Jesus wasn't God, nor was he immortal, and he certainly wasn't able to save humanity, but maybe he was somehow, some way, uh, an ubermensch, more than an average person. A fourth possibility is that Jesus was a misrepresentation. Now, this theory is popularized by writers like Dan Da Vinci Code Brown, and it poses that the church, or some other body, deified Jesus long after his death and magnified him and his accomplishments you know, maybe in some sort of bid to gain power and control people. In this view, Jesus was a merely a teacher, a man, or maybe a slight mystic that got heavily promoted after his lifetime into something much more, somebody who overcame death, for instance. Or was Jesus the Messiah, the master that he claimed to be? That's the final possibility. That is that Jesus is everything the Bible claims him to be. He's the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Savior of Israel, and all of humanity. Now, really, aside from ridiculous theories like Jesus was an alien or something like that, those are the five options as to who Jesus was. You might say, oh, well, he didn't exist at all. Well, that is mind-numbingly skeptical. This is the most well-attested figure in ancient history for multiple, multiple sources. And those people who are skeptic that Jesus even existed at all are not to be found in the real walls of academia, halls of academia. You will find those kind of people posting on Facebook and uh, with a YouTube channel and with a bunch of gullible followers. And yes, I'm saying that somebody who follows somebody else who says Jesus doesn't exist is indeed gullible. It is 
the most well-attested fact of history, uh, of at least ancient history, that Jesus of Nazareth walked the earth. If he literally and historically rose from the dead, then several of those possibilities we just discussed are eliminated outright. Men, for instance, don't come back from the dead. Uh, mystics really don't come back from the dead either. Misrepresentations and myths certainly don't come back from the dead. In light of those pos- potential identities of Jesus, I want you to ponder this question. Why invent and insert women as the first witnesses on Easter morning if the resurrection was a myth or an embellishment or a misrepresentation or an intentional deception? As I said earlier, there's no plausible, rational, logical reason for the women to be so centrally and obviously be portrayed as witnesses of this event, except for, like I said, the simplest reason of all— It really happened that way. If the early church or some writer or people after the early church, for heaven's sake, if they were simply inventing the story of Jesus's resurrection, wouldn't it have made far, far more sense to utilize a prominent and well-respected witness? You know, maybe somebody like Joseph of Arimathea or Simon the Pharisee or Nicodemus. He was a, a Pharisee and a member of the ruling council. Any one of those people, and honestly dozens of others, even somebody you just make up, would make for far more believable and impacting witnesses if one wants to allege that the disciples or some group after them fabricated the story of Jesus and the story of Jesus' resurrection. But they didn't. And the women as witnesses of the resurrection in all four Gospels. Remember, the Bible's not one book. The early church in the first 200, 300 years didn't carry around something called the Bible. They had letters. They had books. They had scrolls. The scroll of John. The scroll of Matthew. The scroll of Mark. Written by different people at different times. And all of these scrolls, manuscripts, books that ultimately became books... All of them declares that the women were the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. That, in my mind, basically slams the door on any possibility that the New Testament, that the Gospels, were fabricated, misrepresentative accounts of the resurrection of Jesus because there's no reason for it. N.T. Wright has this incredibly long book on the resurrection of Jesus. I don't know, hundreds of pages, seven, eight hundred, nine hundred, something like that. He states his case quite brilliantly. He's a brilliant guy. So consider well his questions and the implication of their answers as we close this part of the discussion and get ready to read Exodus 22. Dr. Wright says, Even if we suppose that Mark made up most of his material and did so sometime in the late 60s at the earliest, it will not do to have him or anyone else at that stage making a would-be apologetic legend about an empty tomb and having women be the ones who find it. The point has been repeated over and over in scholarship, but its full impact has not always been felt. Women were simply not acceptable as legal witnesses. We may regret it, but that is how the Jewish world, and the Roman and the Greek world too, worked. The debate between Origen and Celsus shows that critics of Christianity could seize on the story of the women in order to scoff at the whole tale. 
were the legend writers, supposed legend writers, really so ignorant of the likely reaction? If they could have invented stories of fine, upstanding, reliable male witnesses being first at the tomb, they would have done it. That they did not tells us either that everyone in the early church knew that the women, led by Mary Magdalene, were in fact the first on the scene, or that the early church was not so inventive as critics have routinely imagined, or both. Would the other evangelists have been so slavishly foolish as to copy the story unless they were convinced that, despite being an apologetic liability, it was historically trustworthy? Did you catch him saying that? The women as witnesses in the first few centuries, and how about the first, I don't know, 19 centuries? The women as the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus was an apologetic liability. You maybe could have understood in a sexist environment like the first century was why the writers of the Gospels could have left that It's not a little detail, but could have left that part of the story out. Maybe they don't talk about Mary Magdalene being the first witness in the other Marys, etc. Maybe we just brush that under the rug. But they didn't. They included it. And as Dr. Wright says, the only real reason to do that is if, you know, they weren't making anything up. And also, if the story of the women being the first witnesses was already so massively well known by the 60s AD, the latest possible date for Mark, that the early church just absolutely had to put it in there. So, I think the fact that the Bible gives us the women as the witnesses, uh, the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus, I think that is one of the most substantial proofs of the historical reliability of the Gospels. And honestly, I've never read or seen any sort of decent argument against that that goes beyond, uh, no, they weren't, or they were mistaken, or something sexist like they were hysterical, which is what Celsus said. All right, Exodus chapter 22, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. I hope you're as fired up about that as I am. When a man steals an ox or a sheep and butchers it or sells it, he must repay five cattle for the ox or four sheep for the sheep. If a thief is caught in the act of breaking in and he's beaten to death, no one is guilty of bloodshed. But if this happens after sunrise, the householder is guilty of bloodshed. A thief must make full restitution. If he is unable, he is to be sold because of his theft. If what was stolen, whether ox, donkey, or sheep, is found alive in his possession, he must repay double. When a man lets a field or vineyard to be grazed on and then allows his animals to go and graze in someone else's field, he must repay with the best of his own field or vineyard. When a fire gets out of control, spreads to thorn bushes and consumes stacks of cut grain, standing grain, or a field, the one who started the fire must make full restitution for what was burned. When a man gives his neighbor valuables or goods to keep, but they are stolen from that person's house, the thief, if caught, must pay double. If the thief is not caught, the owner of the house must present himself to the judges to determine whether or not he has taken his neighbor's property. In any case of wrongdoing involving an ox, a donkey, a sheep, a garment, or anything else lost, and someone claims, that's mine... The case between the two parties is to come before the judges. The one the judges condemn must repay double to his neighbor. 
When a man gives his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any other animal to care for, but it dies, is injured, or is stolen while no one is watching, there must be an oath before the Lord between the two of them to determine whether or not he has taken his neighbor's property. Its owner must accept the oath, and the other man does not have to make restitution, but if in fact the animal was stolen from his custody, he must make restitution to its owner." If it was actually torn apart by a wild animal, he is to bring it as evidence. He does not have to make restitution for the torn carcass. When a man borrows an animal from his neighbor and it is injured or dies while its owner is not there with it, the man must make full restitution. If its owner is there with it, the man does not have to make restitution. If it was rented, the loss is covered by the rental price. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and he sleeps with her, he must certainly pay the bridal price for her to be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must pay an amount in silver equal to the bridal price for the virgins. Do not allow a sorceress to live. Whoever has sexual intercourse with an animal must be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any gods except the Lord alone is to be set apart for destruction. You must not exploit a resident alien or oppress him since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. You must not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they will no doubt cry to me and I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will burn and I will kill you with the sword. Then your wives will be widows and your children fatherless. If you lend silver to my people, to the poor person among you, you must not be like a creditor to him. You must not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as collateral, return it to him before sunset, for it is his only covering. It's the clothing for his body. What will he sleep in? And if he cries out to me, I will listen, because I am gracious." You must not blaspheme God or curse a leader among your people. You must not hold back offerings from your harvest or your vats. Give me the firstborn of your sons. Do the same with your cattle and your flock. Let them stay with their mothers for seven days, but on the eighth day you are to give them to me. Be my holy people. You must not eat the meat of a mauled animal found in the field. Throw it to the dogs. Job chapter 40 verse 1. The Lord answered Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who argues with God give an answer. Then Job answered the Lord, I am so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not reply twice, but now I can add nothing. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Would you really challenge my justice? Would you declare me guilty to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and clothe yourself with honor and glory. Pour out your raging anger. Look on every proud person and humiliate him. Look on every proud person and humble him. Trample the wicked where they stand. Hide them together in the dust imprison them in the grave. Then I will confess to you that your own right hand can deliver you. Look at Behemoth, which I made along with you. He eats grass like cattle. Look at the strength of his back and the power and the muscles of his belly. He stiffens his tail like a cedar tree. The tendons of his thighs are woven firmly together. His bones are bronze tubes. His limbs are like iron rods. 
He is the foremost of God's works. Only his maker can draw the sword against him. The hills yield food for him, while all sorts of wild animals play there. He lies under the lotus plants, hiding in the protection of marshy reeds. Lotus plants cover him with their shade. The willows by the brook surround him. Though the river rages, Behemoth is unafraid. He remains confident, even if the Jordan surges up to his mouth. Can anyone capture him while he looks on, or pierce his nose with snares? John chapter 1 verse 1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born, not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? He didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. What then, they asked, are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Who are you then, they asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, so they asked him, Why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? I baptize with water, John answered them. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. All this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, The one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The next day John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look! 
the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother, Simon, and told him, Hey, we found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas which is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, hey, we found the one whom Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus responded to him, Do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, Truly I tell you, you will see the heaven opened and the angels of God descending and ascending on the Son of Man. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 1 Now, Paul, I myself appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble among you in person, but bold towards you when absent. I beg you that when I am present, I will not need to be bold with the confidence by which I plan to challenge certain people who think we are behaving according to the flesh. For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ, and we are ready to punish any disobedience once your obedience is complete. Look at what is obvious. If anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, let him remind himself of this. Just as he belongs to Christ, so do we. For if I boast a little too much about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for tearing you down, I will not be put to shame. I don't want to be seen as though I am trying to terrify you with my letters. For it is said, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his physical presence is weak and his public speaking amounts to nothing. Let such a person consider this. What we are in our letters when we are absent, we will also be in our actions when we are present. For we don't dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves, but in measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves to themselves, they lack understanding. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but according to the measure of the area of ministry that God has assigned to us, which reaches even to you. 
for we are not overextending ourselves as if we had not reached you, since we have come to you with the gospel of Christ. We're not boasting beyond measure about other people's labors. On the contrary, we have the hope that as your faith increases, our area of ministry will be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel to the regions beyond you without boasting about what has already been done in someone else's area of ministry. So let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one commending himself who is approved, but the one who the Lord commends. And friends, brothers and sisters, may we be the one whom the Lord commends, not by our righteousness, but by the righteousness of Jesus. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Godspeed.